If you'll look on the screen, you will see a picture taken in late May 2010, after the tropical storm Agatha had passed through Guatemala City. There was so much rain, Agatha created a 330-foot deep sinkhole in downtown Guatemala City. Now, like all sinkholes, this one caused the ground to collapse suddenly. But in this case, it also sucked land, power poles, a three-story factory building, and even a security guard into its deadly pit. According to a report in the Christian Science Monitor, sinkholes in the United States are most common in Florida, Texas, Alabama, Kentucky, Tennessee, Pennsylvania, and Missouri. You see, the ground beneath these states is rich in easily dissolved rock types. And when enough water seeps into these formations, they collapse, creating the large crater known as a sinkhole. A land that looked stable and strong on the surface suddenly collapses, often producing havoc for anyone who lives near the sinkhole. Unfortunately, our interior lives can sometimes resemble the danger zone of a sinkhole. You see, when we're too busy to spend time with God, or when we refuse to deal with past hurts or habitual sin, uh, secret addictions or character flaws, we're setting ourselves up for collapse. Now, the surface of our life may look stable, it may look secure, but underneath the exterior, we're actually sitting on a fragile base. So the storms of life or even just normal process of living can suddenly expose our hidden vulnerabilities, causing a spiritual and relational sinkhole to open up. Though sinkholes seem to appear suddenly, they actually grow slowly over time. The change is often not even noticeable to those above ground. Now the sinkhole represents well David's fall into sin with Bathsheba. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel 11. As we dive into this story, there are some important contextual facts to consider. David was the king of the Israelites. And what made David stand out from King Saul was that David was willing to go out and fight Israel's battles for them, as he did with Goliath when we saw just a few chapters back. But that changes in chapter 11. In fact, look at verse 1. It says this, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war. Now let's stop here for just a moment. Though this description of kings going off to war fits the story we are reading, it's not actually how the Hebrew actually reads. What the text literally says is this, In the spring, at the time when messengers go off to war. Now, to understand why this is significant, we need to understand what a messenger did in David's time. Messengers. Messengers were individuals sent out by the king to conduct royal business. They would deliver the king's orders to the generals on the front lines of the battle. They would negotiate treaties on behalf of the king. Messengers carried out much of the king's public business. So a messenger was a government official who represented the political interest of the king and his kingdom. Also, pay attention to the word sent in this chapter. 
because it implies the use of a messenger. In this chapter alone, a messenger is sent six times. Pay attention to that. So let's go back to verse 1. In the spring, at the time when messengers go off to war, David sent, there it is, sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. And they destroyed the Ammonites and they besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. See, right in this verse, we have the very first sending of a messenger. And it's used in the regular sense. David sends a messenger to General Joab to lead the war efforts. It's as it should be. Even though David is able-bodied himself to lead the war, he stays in Jerusalem and he sends Joab. Now, throughout the rest of 2 Samuel 11, the messenger is used for other purposes than government business. Now the messengers will be now the messengers will be used to arrange for an adulterous affair for the murder of a man no longer acting like a king David uses the kingdom messengers for his personal private life and here's what happens look at verses 2 through 5 one evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace and from the roof he saw a woman bathing the woman was good-looking, beautiful, and David sent, did you hear it? Sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home, and the woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. What is David doing on the roof that day? Well, initially, he is likely up there to cool off. It's springtime in Jerusalem, and in the spring, it is hot in Jerusalem. And when it is hot, sitting on the roof of the palace with a steady breeze makes for the perfect time to catch a nap. Or, since the palace was on a hill where the eye could see for miles, maybe David is looking with pride over the kingdom he has unified, the kingdom that he has built in Jerusalem. On the roof, maybe David is surveying his handiwork. Whatever he was doing, David sees something. Rather, he sees someone, a beautiful, good-looking woman. Bathsheba is actually described as good-looking as she gets herself ready for the day. A quick sponge bath, she fixes the hair, she puts on some makeup. Seeing her, David sends a messenger to get more information about this woman who has captured the king's eye. King David keeps throwing his power around. He sends Joab to fight. Then he sends someone to find out information about Bathsheba. But then, then he sends messengers to have Bathsheba brought to him. And Bathsheba comes to him. David takes her. He has sex with her. And Bathsheba leaves. Then she finds out she is pregnant. Now let's step back from the story for just a moment. Something just happened that I have missed in my time growing up in the church. 
As this story is being told, the author intentionally uses three words where if we catch it, our minds are taken to another biblical story that uses the same three words. And here are the three words. See, looking good, takes. What story in the Old Testament uses the words see, good looking, and takes? Well, let me read a verse for you and you tell me what story it is. Are you ready? Here it is. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good, pleasing to the eye, it was good looking, she took some and ate it. Now, what story uses the words saw, good looking, and took? You got it. The fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. Now, why would the writer of 2 Samuel want us to catch the pattern in this story of David and Bathsheba? It's an important question, I think. Just as it was the pattern which led to the fall of Adam and Eve, catch this, David is following the same pattern which will lead to his fall. And boy, does it. In fact, when we pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 6 to 13, here's what we discover. David sends a messenger to Joab requesting that Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, return to the place, to the palace, to update David on the battle. Send a messenger to get Uriah to be a messenger to David. And so when Uriah gets to the palace, David asks Uriah three questions in verse 7. How well things were for Joab how well things were for the soldiers, and then how well things were with the battle. Now, as I stated the question, I used the word well intentionally. You see, our English translation misses this, but in each question, David uses one word three times, and it's the word shalom, shalom. It means peace, wholeness, well-being. Isn't that ironic? Standing before David is Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, who is carrying David's baby, Bathsheba. And David is scheming a way to get himself out of this situation. See, the last thing on David's mind is shalom. In fact, as we will see, David's actions will bring anything but peace and well-being to the kingdom. Oh, how far David is falling. David receives Uriah's report, and then he commands Uriah to go home, wash your feet, and relax. And Uriah decides not to go home, but rather sleeps at the entrance of the palace. And this annoys David. He says, you've just come a great distance. Why didn't you go home? And Uriah says this, as surely as you live, I'm not going to go home and enjoy the comforts of my house. I'm not going to eat. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to have sex with my wife. The Ark of the Covenant is in the tent, and the people of Israel and Judah are in tents. Why should I get the luxury of life at home? Wow. Uriah's words must have stung David's soul, because what Uriah was committed to doing is what David as king was supposed to do. So what's 
David trying to do in this plotting and scheming? Well, he's trying to trick Uriah into thinking that he's the baby's daddy. And what makes the situation even more complicated is a rule in the warrior's handbook of Deuteronomy chapter 23. This is interesting. There is a rule that says warriors during wartime were to abstain from sex. No sex for warriors so they can keep their minds on fighting. And by telling Uriah to go home and have sex with Bathsheba, David is using his position as king to try and convince Uriah to break the commands of God. Now, some scholars believe that David is trying to make it look like Uriah breaks Deuteronomy 23, which would demand punishment of Uriah. Now, we're never told what the punishment would have been for a warrior who committed such a violation, but it is possible that the punishment would have been execution. If David could get Uriah executed, David would be off the hook. But again, being a man of integrity, Uriah refuses. So what does David do? He thinks, I'll get him drunk. But even as a drunk man, Uriah's morality is stronger than David's because Uriah would not go home drunk and sleep with his wife. You see, Uriah is a converted Gentile, and he displays greater devotion to God and God's word than David, the king of Israel, does. This is not good for David. David is running out of options. He says, give me one more day. Hang out with me for one more day. And Uriah obliges the king. And then David writes a note that says this, put Uriah at the front lines where the fighting is most intense. And he hands his letter to Uriah and Uriah delivers his death note to his commander and Joab carries it out. Uriah dies by the sword of the Ammonites. And when David receives the report that Uriah is dead, essentially he responds with, well, you can't win them all, war kills. Now, can you imagine being Bathsheba, being taken advantage of by the king of Israel? She carries the shame of being pregnant by another man, and now her husband is dead, murdered by the king. As this all unfolds, who have we not heard from so far? God. We've not heard a single word from God or his prophet Nathan. What does God think of all this? What does God think of what David has done? At the end of chapter 11, verse 27, it says this, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And that one verse helps us understand why the story of David, Bathsheba, and Uriah is in scripture. First, this was another fall. The Lord promised David's dynasty would continue, that his son would build the temple for the Lord, and that the dynasty of David would reign forever. David was at the center of God's work in history. But like Adam, David sinned after being promised the world as David's kingdom. And like Adam, David sinned in relation to a woman. And as with Adam, the sin was David's, not the woman's. Adam's sin was, a, was spiritual adultery, while David's was literal adultery. Second, David sinned as Saul did. David waited for over a decade to become king. But once king, he began to rule like the pagan kings did. 
Remember, they ruled by taking. Remember back in 1 Samuel when Samuel warned Israel of this very thing when they asked for a king? He warned them that the king would take their sons and daughters, that he would take their money and taxes and their possessions, 1 Samuel chapter 8, 10 to 22. And one of David's greatest failures was that he would take many wives. And like Saul, David's sin was not just a personal mistake that created problems for him, but it was a threat to the kingdom. And the only way the kingdom could be persevered, preserved, kept from tearing apart, is if David repents of his sin. And so guess what the next chapter is all about? The prophet Nathan bringing news that David will find difficult to accept. He's going to tell David, you need to repent. You see, there are some gifts which are difficult to accept. Uh, Tim Keller illustrates this idea this way. Imagine an aging man whose hearing is failing, but who is in denial about it. He usually complains that it is other people who are mumbling. But finally, his wife gets him to go to his, get his hearing tested. And the clear verdict is that he needs hearing aids. But when he sees what they cost, he's taken aback. He says, we can't afford that. But his wife counters and says, buy the best hearing aids and consider it a gift from me. Now that sounds nice. But the man realizes that to accept this gift is to admit admit weakness. It would be like saying, thanks so much for this. Indeed, I am an aging man who can't hear what people are telling me. Who wants to admit that? Well, repentance is like that. It is the gift that everyone needs, but no one wants. To illustrate our need for a changed heart in addition to changed behavior, Author Christopher Ashe uses the following object lesson based on David's sin with Bathsheba. I have here a glass of water and I shake it. What happens? Water spills out. And you ask me, uh, Troy, why did water spill out of your glass? Well, the natural answer is what? Water came out because I shook it. Uh, But there's another correct answer, which is this. Water came out because water is what is inside of the glass. If there hadn't been water in the glass in the first place, no water would have ever come out of the glass. Sure, it came out because it was shaken, like that. But water came out because water was inside. And so if we ask David, why did you do what you did with Bathsheba? He might say, I did it because I was tempted, because of pressure. I was, as it were, shaken. My equilibrium was disturbed by outside influences and things that happened to me. I was weary. I looked out the window and I saw this beautiful woman and one thing led to another and I was shaken and I sinned. Now, that's what we instinctively say, isn't it? Well, I said that because I was stressed. I did that because I was tired or sick. Uh, My upbringing has conditioned me to react that way. You hear it? We blame it because we're shaken by our circumstances. But David's answer, according to Psalm 51, is, I committed adultery because there is adultery in my heart. David says, I tried to cover up my sin because there's pride in my heart. 
David says, I murdered because love of self and hatred of others was in my heart. The really shocking thing I've discovered, says David, is that what I did expressed who I am. Ooh, catch that. What I did expressed who I am. Evil came out of him because there is evil in David. You see, when we confess how evil we are, God meets us there and he pours out on us the full measure of his grace. Grace upon grace upon grace. You see, God's grace for our sin is how we celebrate through our weakness. Repent. It is the best gift that you can receive from God. 